Hi there, and welcome again to the Credo Fireside Chat, where we connect with interesting people and have more personal investment talks. In this episode, Credo's Ainsley Toe, Head of Multi-Asset Portfolios, speaks with Jeffrey Ptak, Chief Ratings Officer at Morningstar Research Services, about the theory and practice of ratings and research and selecting fund managers. This is your podcast. Please enjoy. Welcome to another Fireside Chat hosted by Credo Wealth. Uh, for those of you that don't know us, Credo is an independent wealth management business founded in 1998 with assets under advisory of over £4 billion pounds, uh, and uh, over 7,000 clients across the UK, South Africa and the rest of the world. Um, Ainsley Toe, uh, head of multi-asset based here in London, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest today. Uh, Jeffrey Patak is Chief Ratings Officer at Morningstar Research Services. During his 19 years at Morningstar, he was also previously Global Head of Manager Research, as well as President and Chief Investment Officer of Morningstar's Asset Management Platform. Uh, Jeff is also on the Asset Management Advisory Committee at the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, and he's also co-host of Morningstar's popular podcast, The, the Long View, um, which is also extremely popular amongst the, amongst the, the, the investment community over here. So, um, Jeff, welcome. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. It's a real privilege. I'm glad to be here. Perfect. And where are you speaking to us from today? Yeah, so I'm in the Chicago area, which is home, and it's also where uh, my employer, Morningstar, is based. So, uh, yes, you find me on a very muggy summer's day here in Chicago. Mm, perfect. Uh, as mentioned in the intro, um, you, you spent a lot of your, your career at Morningstar, but, but you've done a number of different roles during your, your time there. So perhaps you can kick off by giving us a couple of minutes on, on, on sort of your background and career to date from your point of view. I'm happy to. Yeah. So I came out of university with, I majored in accounting. And so I spent the earlier part of my career in public accounting, sort of banging away at the balance sheet, so to speak, auditing large publicly traded firms, and then spent some time doing research on technical accounting and auditing matters. And then as it happened, uh, Morningstar took a chance on me back in 2002. And so I've been in a number of different research and investment management roles started out as a lowly manager research analyst at that time we were called fund analysts um did that for a few years uh spent some time covering publicly traded asset managers and global custodians headed up our etf research for a time and then as you mentioned i, I shifted over to our investment management side where i headed up one of our rias for seven eight years before i had the opportunity to return back to research and head up our our global manager research team which i was privileged to to be a part of earlier and, and then to come back and, and lead it uh, as I did was was a real honor. Um, and so I did that for uh, until relatively recently and have shifted over into the chief ratings officer role. So really sort of my Morningstar career is a story in, in sort of luck and serendipity. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to do a number of interesting things with, you know, some really important advocates and great colleagues along the way. But that's been my journey. Mm, fantastic. Well, we're delighted to have you here to, to talk about your, your experiences in managed research and fund selection in, in particular. Uh, and maybe if we can start by um, taking a little bit of a, a step back and looking at the, the mutual fund industry as a whole. And um, so, so you've obviously been, been analyzing this, this sector for a while. Can you describe in, in your views sort of the biggest changes that you've seen during, during your career? Sure. Yeah, I would say, and this will be a surprise to no one, but it's still an important and notable trend. The most enveloping development is the trend towards lower cost. Um, 
you know, I, I think for a while we would say it was a trend towards unbundling and so sort of separating distribution from manufacturing, as it's called here, um, sort of sales from the practice of investing. That was a very, very important development. And then we've seen further bifurcations from there. But really what's happened is, you know, the service of delivering investment management has gotten further and further atomized, A-T-O-M-I-Z-E-D. It's really, um, you know, sort of become more and more sort of isolated and priced accordingly. And so that's put pressure on asset managers, product providers to make sure that they're as price competitive. And as you know, we've seen a tidal wave of flows to the cheapest products. In fact, just recently, my colleagues published our annual fee study, and it showed that fees have continued to grind lower. Uh, this is a study that focuses on prevailing prices, asset weighted in the U.S. fund market and prices continue to grind lower in 2020. And so that just seems like um, an irreversible trend. Obviously, there's a zero bound, but I think the prices are going to continue to go lower because that is what the market continues to demand, given some of those shifts that I mentioned. Hmm. And and in terms of um, the looking at sort of the, the manager research process uh, in particular, are there any notable trends in terms of the types of research demanded by, by sort of fund, fund investors? Yeah, it's a real good question. I, I would say that, you know, one of the things that certainly changed is at one time the demand was primarily for, and I'm speaking of kind of our core audiences and user groups, which are comprised of financial advisors, engaged individual investors to an extent, allocators and institutions. You know, they were really interested in sort of product research, specifically funds and ETFs. I think that one of the things that we have seen is that they're interested in strategy research that's a bit more product agnostic. And that reflects the fact that, you know, investing has become a bit more of a buffet, if you will, where, you know, you go and you sort of figure out what sort of capability is relevant given the goals and circumstances of your mandate. And then the product, the wrapper, is a secondary concern. So you go and shop for that manager that can fulfill that need. And once you find them, you can figure out how to wrap that um, in a particular legal structure. And so what that compels us to do is find ways to make sure that we can go and leverage our research and apply it to a range of different product types. And so whereas once we focused on mutual funds and ETFs exclusively, now you've seen us range into other areas like separately managed accounts, model portfolios. And I think that you'll see sort of us range into other universes that we don't cover today, sort of just sort of in that same direction of travel that we've been on. So that's been a pretty salient development in the way we look at managers. And then I think that there's been, you know, a, I would like to think it's been a further professionalization of the research that we do. At one time, I think, you know, if if we're honest with ourselves as manager researchers and selectors, performance did have a certain primacy and um, it, it's it's sort of permeating in your process, whether you want it to be or not. And I think that we've tried to take some common sense steps to make sure that performance informs doesn't govern the way we're assessing managers and we're spending the bulk of our time trying to evaluate the things that we think are going to be most predictive, predictive, I should say, of future outcomes which are people, process, and then the parent firm that oversees the product set uh, that we're evaluating at that time. So those are you know, sort of product agno agnosticism, strategy centricity, um, and then further professionalization of the evaluation process. I think those are notable, notable developments over the last certainly decade. Hmm. 
I mean, it's very interesting. And uh, the, the other thing I sh I should have mentioned it before, and I'm so sorry. It's amazing that I didn't cover this, given how long-winded that answer was. But you know, the other thing that I think is is a noteworthy change is the fact that our clients, our users, they define success differently than they once did. And I think that probably mm -hmm. the signal example of that would be sustainable investing, which has become a flagship initiative for the firm and our researchers as well. Um, in that case, they have a more encompassing definition of success than access return or alpha or the number of stars that we put next to a product that they've invested in. You know, what they might be interested in is best practices and you know, sort of, or, or I should say, how well a product upholds best practices for E, S, or G, or all three of them together. And so, again, that's a pretty noteworthy development in sort of what is being demanded of us as, as manager researchers, and we're trying to make sure that we're equal to the task. Mm -hmm. No, and certainly in terms of the uh, the skills required for, for, for manager research abroad, and and then probably continue yeah. to do so as yeah, that's right. So, so um, diving into to, to some of the research that uh, the, the Morningstar puts out, um, uh, one very interesting report uh, you guys call Mind the Gap, um, which refers to a, a phenomenon known as the uh, behavior gap. Maybe you can describe for our audience what, what the behavior gap is and, and when looking at a, a fund and, and how you measure it. I'm happy to. And that's a really timely question because we're actually about to publish uh, our uh, basically, it'll be our, our we'd put it out annually. So this will be our update covering the year 2020, basically the 10 years ended December 31st, 2020. And to quickly summarize what Mind the Gap looks at, it basically looks at the difference between dollar weighted returns, you know, which, you know, internal rate of return is, an, is another term that's used for it. And then the total returns of the fund. And um, why might the two be different? It, it really boils down to the timing and magnitude of cash flows into a product at a given point in time. And, and so Mind the Gap is basically sort of the stamp that we put on this brand of research, looking at how opportunely investors have made use of their funds. We can certainly focus, and many of us do as a practical matter, funds total returns. But as we know, what really matters when it comes down to it is what portion of that return investors are able to actually capture, because that's ultimately what matters to them achieving their goals and, you know, uh, basically achieving a positive outcome, we hope, and in investing in that product. And so we feel like it's a salient bit of research. It's something that we've been doing for a while now. My, my colleague, Russ Kinnell, who uh, chairs our North America Ratings Committee, he's really the person who pioneered this study for us and has done a fantastic job. Uh, now my colleague Amy Arnott is running it. She'll publish the most recent study and we'll look forward to sharing the results. What we have tended to find is that there is a gap, which basically means that investors are not capturing all of their funds returns. And, and how do we close the gap? I mean, that's been something that we've been focused on and we can spend a bit of time talking about that. You know, but really what you're trying to do is instill discipline and patience amongst investors because we think that's one of the ways in which they can capture more of their funds total returns than if they're to try to sort of slalom around the market and chase performance. Hmm. So, so generally speaking, in, in the sport, you, know, you, you note that the investor return, the, the end investor in, in a fund has, has a much lower return than the fund itself. Um, and then in terms of causality, if you, if you, if you managed to... To, to, to find any main reasons for that. Yep. So the chief culprit will be investors who are chasing performance. And so in a situation where they buy high and sell low, their dollar weighted returns are going to meaningfully lag the fund's total returns because 
they're going to come in late and then the fund is going to roll over and uh, then they're going to sell at the bottom. I mean, that's the worst case scenario. And unfortunately, we see that happen, uh, especially with products that you know, are more volatile, maybe are more narrow or thematic. Um, they have a certain kind of sex appeal or curb appeal to them, but they're very, very difficult for investors to handle, our research has found. And so that's where you find the most, the, the widest, I, I would say, gaps is with those more volatile or narrow products. And then the flip side of that is products which are a little bit easier for investors to use. And those tend to be all-in-one products that are very, very widely diversified and then automate key features, like for instance, rebalancing between asset classes and even the glide path. So in the case of a target date fund, which as you know, is a, a very, very popular category of, of funds of products here in the United States. The, the glide path basically dictates the mix of assets over time while the investor holds it. And so it further automates the experience for the investor. And what our research has found is that they generally do a better job of investing in those just because they don't really take action. They invest in them and then they leave it alone. And um, in this case, leaving it alone is is a good way to capture more of your funds total return. Our research has found. Mm -hmm. So, so it, is it fair to say that in terms of disaggregating solutions versus products, those are more solution like that's you know an investor's just holding for the long term is is that a smaller smaller gap? In, maybe a building block in, in sort of a, a broader portfolio? Yep, that's a great question. And yes, our research has has found that. And so, you know, when we look at, at multi-asset, so we basically, when we conduct the Mind the Gap study, we can break it down in a variety of ways, one of which is category group. And one of those category groups is allocation, which is essentially multi-asset. And what you tend to find is that the gaps there are narrowest. And then on the flip side, we have sector groups like, I should say category groups like sector equity and alternatives. And what our research has found is that those products tend to have the widest gaps. And so it, it's it's quite interesting. Um, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to, you know, things like thematic products, um, sector oriented products. Um, and, and some of those have delivered outsized returns and that's what's garnered them the interest from investors and some of the notoriety that they have achieved in the media and elsewhere. Um, but what you find, unfortunately, is that investors, because they don't time their investments into those types of products, opportunely, they capture on a dollar weighted basis the same kind of return that they would have earned if they had just put their money into U.S. multi-asset funds. <laughs> So basically that total return advantage that you would see between sector thematic and multi-asset, I mean, the sector and thematic have, have handily outpaced multi-asset just because they've been exposed to some of the most successful themes and areas in the last decade or so, but investors through poor timing have furthered away those advantages. And so basically what they get is the volatility of a thematic product, but the same dollar weighted return that they would have had in a less volatile multi-asset product. That's what our research has found. And that's one of the reasons why we think it's important to continue to highlight this area. Hmm. And, and just in terms of uh, timing generally, whether it's into to sort of traditional active funds, into thematic sort of index-based funds, or, or, or um, sort of very, very traditional passive funds, is it, have you seen any difference in, in ability to time between those or, um, uh, or maybe your, your sort of personal views on that? 
So it's it's quite controversial um, in a sense. I think that you know those who are proponents of active funds take great umbrage when you suggest that people do a better job of investing on a dollar weighted basis in passive products. Um, and, and I think they actually have a point insofar as what our research has found is it doesn't depend quite so much on whether it's active or passive as the context in which that investment is used. And so I think what you might see more often with a passive product, and, and I'm speaking of sort of like a cap weighted, widely diversified um, sort of beta product, if you will, as opposed to like some smart beta, this or that, um, that's much, much narrower. I'm talking about like the, you know, the, the most, you know, sort of the broadest types of products, you know, those tend to be part of solutions, as you know, um, maybe they're used to try to execute a pl an investment plan, right? And, you know, and they're paired with other very broad products. And the idea is to provide the exposure to the market, and then find value elsewhere as part of maybe the financial advisory program that they're a part of. And so by virtue of that, they're not going to tinker with it as much, and they're going to probably stick with it through thick and thin. Whereas I think when you have these standalone nichier products, especially when they've got some of that curb appeal to them, I think that that tinkering goes on. And, and oftentimes those products are active, not always, but many times they are. And, and so I think that can lead to um, less than optimal results and wider gaps in those cases. But it is nuanced and I, I would never, I would not suggest that, you know, you're gonna see a smaller gap if you invest in a passive product because that in and of itself is not going to guarantee that you're going to use it wisely. Um, there can be other factors that intrude that, you know, cause you to chase performance and, and basically have a big gap there. And, and conversely, you might use an active fund very, very prudently and capture most of its total return. So I think it's more about context than it is the product type. Hmm. How the tool is used as opposed to the, the, the exactly. tool itself. Mm. That's right. Perfect. And and just on on to sort of a, a, another area of research, and maybe maybe you can explain for, for our audience what Dunn's law is, um, and and some of the insights there. I'm happy to. And so what what Dunn's law holds is uh, essentially, I mean, the, the way to think about Dunn's law is let's suppose that we're talking about an investment style, and um, you've got a bunch of different strategies that implement that investment style. And so I'm here in the U.S., and, and one of the most popular category of strategies would be U.S. large cap. And so as we know, we've got a number of active funds that are out there, and they're going to invest primarily in the stocks uh, of large capitalization companies. Their indexes are going to invest exclusively in large capitalization companies. But let's go back to those active managers. In a, I said primarily large capitalization companies. It's also possible that they will hold the stocks of mid caps and even small caps. And so basically what it means is that they tend to be a little less style pure, or that is they're a little messier than their indexes. And so what does that mean? It basically means in a situation in which that style is in favor, the index is going to be more difficult for the active funds to beat. Why is that? It's because it's got a more unadulterated exposure to that style. In this case, it's large cap stocks. And then conversely, in situations in which that style is out of favor, let's imagine that mid and small cap stocks are ruling the roost, then it's going to tend to advantage those active managers. And why is that? It's because they are more exposed to those styles. And this is what active funds do. I mean, they 
they're going to change the weightings of the stocks that comprise an index, and then they're going to go outside the index. And so that means that they're going to be less style pure than their index. And so what Dunn's Law holds is that in many cases, when we see these divergences of active funds from the benchmark that represents their style, it's often explained by these stylistic differences and what's leading, what's lagging. And, you know, it's something that that I've tended to cite in my work just because I think that, you know, we we can go and form narratives around what it is we're seeing. You know, this manager is leading, this one is lagging. Therefore, that first manager is a hero and, and this other manager is a goat. And in really what is often happening is sort of stylistic cross currents explaining why it is the manager is leading or another one is lagging. And it's just important to sort of place it in a broader stylistic context. And I think if you can do that, then you can make, I think, more prudent judgments um, and certainly be more patient through a market cycle and make better use of a, an active strategy, certainly, than perhaps you otherwise could. So that that's kind of what Dunn's Law is. It's just sort of understanding what the different stylistic exposures are in products how that compares to the benchmark that they're compared to. And then after reconciling those differences, trying to explain some of the performance differences that, that you're seeing. Hmm. Yeah, I found that sort of area of research very interesting. Um, and then one of the implications I, I, I took from it, uh, from a multi-manager sort of context, is that if you're, if you're separating your asset allocation process from, from your fund selection, uh, so for example, you're overweighting or underweighting um, different categories based on your view of the expected returns of that category, but then afterwards you're implementing that asset allocation by selecting active managers within those within those categories. Um, that's that's sort of where the the, the messy exposure of, of active management becomes a problem. Um, exactly. So for for example, if if I choose to overweight U.S. large cap growth because I think that sector will uh, that category will outperform, but the active managers in that sector underperform when U.S. large cap growth is beating the other sectors, then I, you know, what I gained from my um, correct cash recall, I might lose on the, on the, um, on the fund selection side, um, which was, you know, uh, I just found quite interesting because, yeah, separating those two decisions. Um, you're, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And I mean, I think that's one of the reasons, like it or not, that allocators have become more and more fond of passive products, just because I think it's one less moving part for them to deal with. They put on exposure. They don't really have to worry about the tracking error of their managers, um, you know, and sort of Dunn's law coming into play, um, you know, or wondering whether something is is simply attributable to style versus skill. They just put on the beta um, and and implement their allocation that way, and it's one less thing to worry about. We know that there are many many skilled active investors who are out there. Um, and, and we know that they will con continue to confer good outcomes to investors and beat their benchmarks and allocators will benefit from that. Um, but I think as a practical matter, there are a number of allocators that are out there, uh, advisors and individuals for that matter, who are just basically deciding that, you know, simpler is is better. And so they, for the reason that you've noted, they decide that they'll just implement with passive. Hmm. Perfect. Yeah, and then moving on to sort of the, the you know, Active and passive, and then of course, as you mentioned already, you know we, we have to be careful with, with the definitions. Um, but uh, one thing I, I thought was was quite interesting when looking at um, what, what we think of as active, which is at, uh, um, traditional traditional active managers, not not including sort of factory exposures, etc., um, is that 
or the or, or, or the literature on on the mutual fund side um, or, and mutual fund form and spanning many decades um, sort of concludes that you know it, it's it's um, it's obviously very hard to 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 beat the market for for, for many mutual funds. Um, whereas if we're looking at the security side in terms of the academic literature on on asset pricing. Um, so looking at the cross-section of returns across individual securities, um, a lot of the research such as um, equity factors, for example, looking at looking that research suggests that there are many investment strategies that, that do beat the do beat uh, just the cap-weighted exposure to the market. So, so um, you know, you, you, you've studied many, many managers um, and probably seen a lot of things that, that you know, academics would, would, would never be able to um, take into account in, in sort of broad studies. How, how do you reconcile the differences there in that why, why have so few mutual funds been able to, to be in the market and yet in academia that there, there are there are a lot of known factors that that, that beat the market yeah no it's a great question um i mean i think that as a practical matter i don't think that fund managers have always done the most sort of realistic job of pricing their products um mm -hmm. you know i think this has been that's been especially true over the last 10 to 15 years the game has changed um i think that there's been you know excellent research that folks like michael mobison have done that show that through the professionalization of investors in the markets sorry this is my dog sort of getting restless in the background here um through the professionalization of investing you know, things like the standard deviation of pre-fee alphas um, or information ratios that, you know, basically that's that's gotten narrower and narrower. And what that basically means is that, you know, investors collectively have, got, have gotten more skilled. And, um, and in turn, what that means is that there's less alpha for active managers to capture before fees. And, you know, there can be a number of different reasons. I said professionalization uh, of investing, you know, the dissemination of information is another one gains in sort of trading and, and operations. I mean, these are all reasons why you can see this grinding away of alphas that might have previously been available. And, and what hasn't happened is you haven't seen prices come down as rapidly as they need to come down. And so as a practical matter, what you find is that a lot of these funds, not all of them, but a lot of these funds just after fees are baked in, they can't keep up with their benchmarks. And so that's why it's pretty typical to see over, say, a three-year cycle, I'm focusing on the U.S., you know, it's 20 to 40 percent of the active funds that we would be tracking if that over a three-year period of time uh, in aggregate are going to be beating their benchmarks. And, and that's it, academic literature aside. So, so it's really it's the difference between theory and practice, pre-fee and post-fee, and then taking into account developments in the market, which, if anything, have made it more difficult for active to succeed in certain areas, particularly in equities. Mm. And, and you, you, you mentioned you spend a, a little bit of time on, on in terms of uh, equity research on, on, on that slide and looking at individual securities. Um, so, again, a, a sort of a little bit of a theoretical question, but um, uh, in terms of the one of the predominant views of why, why you know, in terms of mutual funds, um, why they underperform for market, as you mentioned, is, is this market deficiency element and that, you know, prices are, are incorporating enough information that there's not, not enough left for, for, for managers to, to profit. Um, but at the same time, when you look at the sets within, you know, the, the mutual fund industry and the amount of um, AUM allocated to, to funds that, that aren't necessarily um, expected to, to outperform, it maybe suggests that the mutual fund market is, is not as efficient as, as the, um, the, the, the stock market, at least, um, when, we, when we're talking about equities. 
I don't know whether that's in terms of observations of um, investors in mutual funds, whether that's um, uh, you know something you've observed in, in terms of other other enough frictions that, that, that make the mutual fund market so so inefficient if, if there's such a misallocation of capital there, or are we looking at it the wrong way in that sense? No, I think that's I think that's a a fair point. Um, I mean, I think that you know one of the idiosyncrasies of a fund market, and this is true of the U.S., is distribution, um, sales, and and how intermediated it has been. And and I think for quite some time, you know, you you know you basically had a lot of flow going to funds that um, maybe weren't necessarily worthy in, in some ways. You know, but it forged relationships that were important and and that basically ensured that they received flows of money. I think that this has largely reversed itself over the last decade plus. But I think that, you know, when we're talking about the 90s and the early parts of the aughts, you know, I think that that sort of distribution complex was still alive and well. And it funneled a lot of money towards funds and it, it remains in some of these funds in certain cases. You know, they just didn't really necessarily have the chops to deliver the alpha at the end of the day when you took their fees into account. And so, you know, the industry has been sort of working this off. I don't want to sort of paint a picture that, you know, you've got, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars that is sitting with totally unworthy, unskilled managers. I think that there's, you know, a number of high quality funds and we've got high ratings on them that I think are deserving of their investors confidence. Um, but I think to your point, there's a number of other funds where, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a remnant of a previous era where uh, I think that sort of the power of the narrative and some of the relationships that you forge explains why they have the assets that they have. And I think the market has been working to correct that over the last decade plus when you've seen lots of money flow out of some of these products and, and into index products. But you know, again, it's just it's sort of the realities of of how, you know, sort of the business of running money, uh, how it works. And um, it's it's maybe a, maybe a, a bit less forgiving than an academic study would suggest. Perfect. So we talk a little bit about the industry. Maybe I'd like to zoom in from from the industry level down to individual managers and your thought process for, for assessing them. Um, sure. and, you, and you touched on a, a few of the points. Um, but but the, the 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 first thing that most most investors tend to look at is 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 returns um, of a fund or a manager. How, how relevant is is past performance data, and what are the right and wrong ways to use it for for manager selection? Sure, that's no, a real good question. Um, yes, I mean I think that I think that performance can be informative. Um, I think it's it's very very important to place it in an appropriate context within the overall research process. And that can start with sort of how you sequence that process. I mean, I, I think that if you're running screens and it's based on performance, that's pretty much going to guarantee that performance is going to play a very, very influential role in your decision making and monitoring process. I mean, it's just inescapable. Um, you know, whereas I think that if you are to sort of widen the aperture a little bit, and and start with the question of okay what is it we're trying to achieve here what kind of exposure are we looking to put on what are sort of the characteristics of this area that we're looking to invest in you know if we look at it how efficient or inefficient has it been and and why maybe has it been that way let's suppose it's inefficient um for instance we see a very wide gradient of returns amongst the different funds that are within that space or invest in that style 
you know, how exploitable are some of the opportunities that we see there? And, and then, you know, based on that, what are some of the attributes of a manager that, that you have seen go in and exploit some of those opportunities in these areas where you think there are exploitable opportunities. To me, that's that's a much more sort of useful progression track to go down than, you know, let's put on a three-year performance screen and whoever's in the top quartile will start diligencing them. I mean, at that point, you know, really sort of people process and parent you know, those are very sort of cosmetic parts of the evaluation process because performance has gotten you at least three quarters of the way there. And so I think if you can invert things slightly so that performance plays that supportive rather than dominant role in the process, you know, then I think you can make a more considered judgment about whether a manager is relevant to what you're trying to do, um, you know, let alone has the capabilities to to deliver that to to your investors over time. And so that's that's kind of the way we've come to think about performance as part of our process. And that's why we've made the evaluation of people and process and parent. Those are sort of the the overarching or I should say the organizing principles for the research that that our colleagues conduct. And I, I should mention, um, you know, you're, you're you're being very kind in, in letting me speak to it. But we have a really great team here. Uh, led by Lee Davidson. He heads up our global manager research and quantitative research team. And he's got a number of lieutenants who report to them throughout the world that do just a fantastic job day to day of diligencing managers. And so really, I'm describing the process that they follow and doing the great work that they do. Mm, perfect. And, and I'm sure we'll come on to sort of manager meetings and some of some of the uh, nuances in, 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 the, in the qualitative research. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, you, you mentioned um, uh, some of the three P's there uh, and maybe for uh, just quickly for some um, for, for many retail investors, they only have access to g generic information and may not have right. you know, um, necessarily either the skill set or the access uh, to, to do some detailed due, due diligence. So, so maybe if we can do a quick sort of lightning round of um, I'll give you some headline fun information. You can let me know, you know, so just a couple of couple of quick thoughts on, on each, whether it's relevant or not or, or whether they might be useful. So, for example, for, 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 for an investor looking at total expense ratio of a fund, how, how relevant is that? I think it's extremely relevant and that actually would be the first place I start is looking at the expense ratio of the product that you're looking at. It's absolutely true that there can be cheap products that are terrible and expensive products that are worthy. But generally speaking, I think that the expense ratio is something that you can use to tilt the odds in your favor. And so if you had to start with a thing for your search within a particular style, category, what have you, I would look at fees and that's i realize going to be an unpopular view in some quarters where people are like oh come on you know it's really it's about what you get after fees you can't make that your starting point our research has found that fees are one of the most predictive if not the most predictive variables that someone can focus on and so i think that for the average investor who wants to tilt the odds in their favor that is a great place to start it, i think it also does tell you something in subtle ways about the firm um I think it can tell you how it is they think about the investment process, how realistic they are. It also can tell you how it is they um, approach the market. You know, how, how what is sort of the fiber of this firm? Who do they do business with? And, and basically, when you look at the expense ratio and get a sense 
of what's packed in there, what share class are, is made available to you, why are you getting that share class, who else are they selling to. It can just give you a sense of the overall orientation of the firm. So it's another reason to focus on fees. So that's you know, that, that's an important place to start. I, I would also certainly look at things like turnover rate. And I'm really, I'm speaking uh, about equity strategies here. Um, when I've talked about diligencing managers, I think I've said before that a turnover rate, to me, that can be really, really telling. Um, again, it doesn't evidence skill. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily predict whether you're going to have a good experience or outcome in a product. I just think it can be revealing about what kind of culture, you know, is it very, very sort of research intensive uh, and patient? I mean, the turnover ratio can actually tell you quite a bit about that just at a glance and, and allow you to dig in a little bit more. So that's a process oriented evaluation that, you know, I think you can use with, you know, a pinpoint data point like turnover ratio. That's something that I would focus on within people. I would certainly look at the tenure of the managers that are involved, um, how many managers there are, um, you know, and sort of whether there's any sort of pecking order, as far as you can tell, um, you know, sort of a manager history and seeing whether there's been frequent changes over time. Again, that's something that can be revealing, not just with respect to the strategy, but also how that firm is wired and what kind of job they have done of sticking with strategies through thick and thin and with managers that are running those strategies through thick and thin. One of the things that we know is that career risk can be quite hazardous. And basically career risk is this notion that, you know, managers are, you know, they're basically, they're afraid that they're going to get fired. And so um, they're running scared, you know, basically in the way they run money. And so they'll hug their benchmarks and they'll chase performance and, and they won't be the kind of sort of courageous investor that they need to be to succeed in the market long-term. And so if you see there's a history with a fund of managers cycling in and out, it might suggest that, yeah, they are worried about their jobs because this is a firm that has a history of swapping out managers on a frequent basis. So that manager tenure is another thing that I would look at. And then the last thing is, I think, with respect to parent, you know, big firms, boutiques. I mean, I think that, you know, organizations have proven that both of those models can work, but there are trade-offs associated with each. So I would just try, like, if you are looking at a fund, try to learn about the family. How many strategies do they offer? What seems to be sort of their core expertise or focus? Do they look like they want to be sort of, um, you know, sort of the masters of all these different disciplines? Or do they tend to niche and focus? That, that also can be revealing. I mean, that's kind of the set of progressions that I would go through if I just had sort of the filings or publicly available information available and I couldn't talk to the manager those are the kinds of things that I would probably focus on. Mm, perfect. Yeah, known you hit almost uh, on my list, so that's great. Um, and, and maybe focusing on, on the metric side um, mm -hmm. as, as well. Uh, so, so Warnerstar launched their quantitative ratings uh, a few years ago, uh, which are driven by by machine learning. Can you describe these these ratings for our audience and how they're put together? Yeah, I'm happy to. Yeah, so back in. It was 2017, our colleagues in our quantitative research area, um, and, and so these are very, very skilled quantitative researchers, data scientists, they built a model. It's a machine learning model. And essentially the way to think of this model is it is trying to emulate the rating setting practices of human analysts like myself and my colleagues here. So essentially what the algorithm is attempting to do is 
look at the universe of rated funds, that is funds that have been evaluated by analysts, um, the attributes of those funds and the ratings that the, the analysts have assigned to those funds. And based on those learnings and the inferences, the algorithm draws based on those relationships, it can go and apply those learnings to funds that our analysts don't cover. And, and essentially in so doing, they can make a quantitative evaluation, a forward-looking evaluation, a quantitative evaluation that mimics the way a human analyst would assign a rating to that fund if they were to cover it. And so really it's designed to work in tandem with the ratings that our human analysts assign. So it's, it's known as the quantitative rating for funds and it sits alongside the Morningstar analyst rating. The Morningstar analyst rating is the rating that our analysts assign to funds and other managed investment products that they evaluate based on the merits of the product that they're evaluating. But that's what the quant rating is. Mm. And, and you know, with the with machine learning, as, uh, as with many you know, data-driven exercises, a lot of it depends on, on, the, on the inputs that you're feeding. So, so how do you decide which inputs go into, into the quant ratings? Yep. And so our, our colleagues on the quantitative side have done a, a very comprehensive sweep of the different data points that are available to us for all the funds that we cover. Um, and their relationship to the essentially the the evaluations that that the analysts are making. Um, and so uh, just to maybe back up a second here. So when our analysts are doing their work, they're not only assigning a headline rating, which takes the form of gold, silver, bronze, neutral or negative, but also pillar ratings. And so I mentioned before people process and parent for each one of those areas, there's a pillar rating that they assign, which takes the form of high above average, average below average, uh, and low. And so essentially what that gives the algorithm is information that it can use. And so it, it will look at, you know, for instance, below average people, parent ratings, you know, what is the relationship between that and say maybe the average tenure of the manager that's that's on that fund, which is a data point that we that we collect. Also, as you can imagine, you know, we're, we're looking at price and that's an input into the model and that can feed into either process uh, or parent um, and, and, and so to performance. We, we try to make sure that that performance is not something that's driving the model uh, because that's not the way our analysts are approaching their work but certainly performance can play a role. And so that's another type of input in addition to other measures like turnover ratio, the number of funds that have been launched or merged away over some period of time and a myriad of other data points. Essentially uh, our analysts, you can sort of think of it as a vacuum cleaner. Um, our quantitative analysts are taking all of those different data inputs, sucking them in, comparing them to the assessments that our analysts have made, looking at the relationships between those and then drawing inferences based on that uh, in terms of sort of like the strength of those relationships in deciding what to include in our quantitative model that ultimately spits out the quantitative rating that we assign to funds that our analysts aren't covering. And, and I should mention that, you know, for each one of our primary rating systems, we've been talking about the Morningstar analyst rating as well as the quantitative rating. There are methodology documents that are publicly available that we post to our website, and that would that would list off, in the case of the quantitative rating, the, the different variables and inputs that go into it and determine what the rating is going to be. Mm. 
and uh, from from memory, the 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 algorithm that was chosen uh, that, that you guys used was was random forest, um, and and it's the, one of the the advantages. It's somewhat more interpretable than some of the other machine machine learning techniques out there. So, are, are there any um, are, is there anything about that the the process and the, and the way the inputs are flowed through, maybe the weighting that it's putting on different variables that, that surprised you, um, versus you know the 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 qualitative process that the analysts use? Yeah, and so. So this is where the art and science comes in. I think that there would be some variables that maybe would feed into things like people or process that you wouldn't immediately associate as an analyst with people and process. But I think that part of the value uh, of a quantitative routine like random forest is, I mean, it can be revealing about analyst tendencies. We, we, we only publish, I should say, we will publish a quant rating or an analyst rating for a fund, but not both. And, and the reason for that is we wanna make sure that we don't confuse the algorithm and that the algorithm doesn't confuse the analysts. But all the same, you know, we, we can learn from the algorithm insofar as it's finding relationships between certain variables and certain of our pillars that we wouldn't normally associate as human analysts. And that might tell us that we're maybe a little bit more focused on performance than then perhaps you know we we would have assumed um, you know or you know something that we say think that we take into account as human analysts you know maybe really isn't as big of a weight when it comes to the random forest model and, and the weighted accords to it as part of the quant model and so I'd say it's been revealing it's been revealing in that sense and also they they retrain the model on a periodic basis and to see changes there. You know, that can also give you a sense of maybe what it is the analysts have been paying more or less attention to as they go through their work. And that can be something that feeds into the work that we do so that we're a little bit more cognizant of that as we're doing our diligence on managers. Hmm. Perfect. And, and in terms of, um, so, so the, the, I guess we'll, we'll come on to, to manage meetings in a second, but you, you mentioned sort of uh, the, the art versus the science, if you like. Um, it, on the on the um, investment due diligence side, is is there anything from your personal experience that you found as as tended to be contradictory or or, or maybe you know uh, opposed to some of the broad academic findings with, with within sort of manager selection? So I think that, and I'm guilty as guilty of this, maybe more guilty of this than any manager, researcher, or investor out there. I think that we underestimate how perishable things are, and you know, I mean like the right the, the first place you would go is sort of like excess returns or skill or measures thereof and you know how those decay over time um you know and, and one of the reasons that happens is because investors love a strategy to death it has some success they pour assets in and that changes the way that investors investor approaches things uh because he or she can't do it in the same way they did before you know that's one of the most common reasons why you see decay or perishability in investment strategies. And I think that I think that we do have a tendency to underestimate that, but it also extends to sort of people issues, organizational issues. Um, sometimes you have folks that lose their focus and their fire and they're human beings. And that's part of the beauty of this business is that, you know, you you're basically bringing you're harnessing the intuition skill um of these human beings and and basically achieving an outcome that might not have been possible otherwise uh without that 
by the same token, the flip side of that is these are people that have their own set of imperatives and circumstances and things can change and in very, very unexpected ways. And I think that's even truer of organizations as their priorities and imperatives shift around, that can have a real um, profound impact on the way um, they invest, um, or I should say their portfolio managers invest as part of that organization. You know, you think of things like fund mergers, which have, I would say at best, a very checkered track record in the fund industry. You know, those are the sorts of things that that can happen and, and really throw uh, a wrench into the works and have a big impact on sort of who's going to be calling the shots there and and how focused they're going to be on delivering good outcomes to investors. So I would say that just as I've you know, been sort of exposed to this more and more, I'd like to think I've become sort of more humble about those aspects of it and less certain in my views. And I think that's probably a good mindset for us all to have as we're approaching manager diligence. Hmm. Yeah. And then uh, I guess in terms of all the, all the formal attribution techniques and being able to dissect performance, it's, it's, um, you know, it's one thing looking at what, what has happened and being able to you know, um, find some interesting insights about, uh, about that past period. But obviously it's another thing then using that for prediction about oh, what, 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 what's, uh, which funds are going to outperform in the future and, and then what's going to drive those, those returns. No, I think that's, that's quite right. That's quite right. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the more you can get in and sort of decompose things, um, break it into smaller pieces. I mean, performance attribution, you mentioned that's one of the ways in which we can do that. But even focusing on sort of the squishier aspects of manager diligence, you know, sort of understanding what the component parts of a strategy are and, and how maybe that's contributed to its success or, you know, the struggles it's had recently. It just helps you to sort of place things into a broader context and make, I think, a better more patient decision um, about you know whether to continue with it or to to look for another strategy. Um, you know, my, my personal philosophy is you know less is way more. Um, try to, and this is another area where, or maybe viewpoint where, you know, I, I think maybe it won't be positively received by some of the folks that are watching this, but. I think there's real value in trying to minimize the number of decisions that you're making, make as few decisions as possible. And that doesn't mean that you're inert, you're doing nothing. But I think that if you can put yourself in a position where you don't have to make as many future decisions because you've been more thoughtful about what your expectations are, how those apply to the manager that you're diligencing, and then basically evaluate them per those standards. It basically, it, it obviates the need for you to make future decisions. And I think the fewer decisions you make, the better off you're gonna be, which is kind of like, it brings us full circle back to that mind the gap, the behavior gap that we were talking about earlier, these timing gaps in investors experience. I mean, I think that one of the things that you observe when you look at that study, you know, is, you know, year in and year out the way we do, when investors put themselves in, in situations where they have to make more decisions, they're going to get themselves into more trouble and they're going to have more timing gaps and they're not going to capture as much return as they could otherwise. And so I think that should inform our approach when it comes to diligencing managers. Try and put yourself in a position through a process that you've implemented where you don't have to make as many of those decisions and as many of those changes in the future. I think that's a good thing to aspire towards. Mm, no, certainly that resonates a lot with the, you know, my, my views on it. Um, so, so, so we've spoken a little bit about the, the hard data and then the sort of the 
maybe the um uh, the science side and now i do want to shift to, to the you know uh, manager meetings in particular which sure. is obviously where, where you gather a lot of the qualitative information that um you know uh, maybe you can't glean from um, from returns or, or holdings data so so maybe we start off if uh, when when are managing meetings important in, in your view um, and and also what, what what do you look to gain that you can't um from from just sort of pure desk research yeah no great questions um i guess i would start by saying that in, and this is another, even my colleagues strongly disagree with me on this. I do tend to think that manager meetings are a bit overrated. Um, I think that they are, they're an important part of an evaluation process, but they're not absolutely essential. And I think the way they're often conducted in practice is suboptimal. Um, like going into a manager meeting and being like, okay, what's changed at your firm? And, oh, I see you traded this, uh, you know, you bought this and you exited that. To me, that is not a very fruitful use of time. Um, and, and I don't know that that's necessarily going to yield a lot of insights that are going to help you to make, you know, a great judgment about whether to continue allocating to this manager or to take a different decision. Um, so that's what I mean by manager meetings can be overrated. Where are they most essential? I mean, as a, as a practical matter, I would say the more opaque a strategy is or the more complex a strategy is, the more important it becomes to have access to a decision maker. Um, just because as you've already alluded to, there's limits from the information. I mean, like I think of some of these liquid alternative strategies that I look at and I look at, you know, sort of like annual reports and semi-annuals and what have you all the time. And I look at these things and I have no idea what is going on. It's like, it's hopeless for somebody that doesn't have access to the manager. I think in many of those cases, they're not worth allocating to anyways. But my point is, in some of these situations, it can be quite helpful to talk to the managers just to sort of unpack what it is you're seeing there and why they're allocating to it and what are the risk return attributes of the individual securities in isolation and in combination that explains why you're seeing them in the ledger the way you are. And it doesn't always have to be exotica that we're talking about, alternative strategies or what have you. It could be fixed income strategies, right? Um, you know, I mean, fixed income is, you know, it's not sort of complicated. We know what a bond is, you know, but there's a dizzying variety of these securities. And, and then when you're talking about sort of the three dimensions of portfolio management and how it is a, a fixed income manager is bringing all these securities into a portfolio, it can be really useful to talk to them and, and sort of pick their brain the data and analytics around fixed income are not always where they ought to be, uh, depending on what you have access to. And so I think that makes it even more potentially valuable to talk to fixed income managers. Where is it less valuable? I mean, long only equity in a lot of situations. I don't know that you, it's necessarily essential to have a manager meeting, but it, it, can, be, it can be helpful to, to, to have those manager meetings. And, and we do consider it a privilege to, to have those opportunities the way we have uh, amongst our manager researchers here at Morningstar and in talking to managers. So we're very grateful for the access that we get. We hope we continue to get it. Um, but I'm just trying to illustrate that there's sort of a spectrum of value that you have in manager meetings. And I don't know if you wanted to talk about sort of like how it is one should approach a conversation with a manager based on the experiences that we've had, but I'm happy to speak to that as well. Mm, no, absolutely. Yeah, and you, know, you mentioned there are elements which are maybe overrated, but but also um, any 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 elements with the, the crucial parts of, of manager meeting. Maybe, for example, something that would be a deal breaker that you, you'd hear in a meeting that would override a lot of the 
the, the, you know, the desk research you've done? So I would say that, you know, something that would be conspicuous by its absence, if I, if I went through a manager meeting and I didn't have a real good sense of, you know, decision accountability, who owns decisions? Um, how are decisions made? And I'm not suggesting that this always is going to be crystal clear. You can have, you know, multi-manager systems where you've got a number of different portfolio managers who are collaborating, each of them with different roles and responsibilities or areas of expertise. You know, I mean, that's not going to always, you know, be a single slide in a PowerPoint or a quick soundbite in a manager meeting. It's going to be a more distributed system. But I think if I if I came away from a manager meeting, it was just like, holy cow, I mean, I have no idea how they make decisions here, who is accountable for what. That's a red flag. You know, you don't you don't want to come away from a manager meeting with that kind of feeling. You know, the other thing that I, I would say, it's it's a little bit corny, but, you know, I wrote a piece a few years back where I suggested it can be valuable to ask a manager to work backwards. And what I mean by that is the manager should be able to clearly articulate what their excess return goal is. And so there's a very simple arithmetic behind that. I mean, you're going to go to a product that's going to have an expense ratio on it. One hopes that their their excess return target exceeds the expense ratio. Otherwise, we're all wasting our time there. Once they can articulate that, and you'd be surprised how um, unequipped or loathe some portfolio managers are to do that. But once they articulate that, it can be really revealing to have them work backwards from that. So let's say, okay, I think I can do 2% per annum pre-fee in this strategy that I have, or maybe I price it at 75 basis points. And so you've got basically, you know, a, an excess net return of, you know, positive, what's it, 1.25, 125 basis points per annum. Okay, so so kind of work back from that. How do you, how do you get that 2%? Where's it going to come from? Maybe it's a long-only equity strategy. 2% is not a small number. So where, where is that coming from? How are you getting the mispricings that you're going to need in order to get that 2% per annum pre-fee. Um, I think that can be, you know, a pretty revealing conversation to have with a manager, especially on first conversation. And if you can't really come away with, you know, a, a kind of a cogent uh, um, sort of explanation of how it is they're getting to that, again, that's a bit of a red flag. And conversely, you know, if you come away from that meeting, like they have a really sort of ordered sense of how it is they're going to add value, um, you know, then that's a good fact. You know, that's that's going to buttress your confidence that that sort of their system of running money uh, has been well thought through and, and that they, they can implement it in a way that actually it does have a chance of delivering a positive outcome over time. Mm. And, and uh, you know, we, we touched on previously in terms of some of the, the behavioral factors for, um, for for a manager, you know, and, and assessing, you know, their their. The, the way they they approach decisions, etc. Uh, maybe maybe you can talk about how. Uh, are there any techniques you use to to, to gauge that during during a meeting? Uh, just in terms of sort of like, are they are they sort of are they following what they're saying? They're doing. Sort uh, of they, uh, are no, go ahead. I guess the um the the you know the the, the examples I used were for um uh, when when you think about. Maybe managers who aren't who aren't necessarily um, as 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 prone to changing their mind when when when, when um, uh, provided with new information, or uh, who aren't who aren't necessarily as as um, you know focused on, on what their edges or, or are less aware of what, what their edges things that you know Michael Moberson may, 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 may have talked about as well in terms of decision making, and and uh, especially in, when faced with, with with uncertainty, 
and how, how you assess that and the soft qualities there. Yeah, no, so I think it's, it, it makes a lot of sense to go into a conversation, you know, sort of thinking about, you know, I, I want to define what this manager's true capability and expertise is, you know, um, and so really, you know, talking to them about that. I mean, you know, you're a long only equity manager, obviously it goes without saying that you're going to try and go and beat your benchmark. How are you going to do that? You know, what's your investment style? What evidence is that in the portfolio? Give me some examples of that. You know, and then if they give you an example of a security, really tying back to some of the things that they said earlier in the conversation about, here's what we think we're really good at. I mean, I think it can be really, really worthwhile in a conversation, you know, when you're talking to a manager, you know, to ask them to explain to you why the market is mispricing the security that they that they think, you know, stands to deliver outsized returns to them. I mean, is the story misunderstood? Is there something about the way this firm is organized that defies the understanding of the market and doesn't command the kind of multiple that you think it commands? Um, how could you be wrong? You know, and, and to what extent have you built on a margin of safety for your investment? And what was that price that reflected a mar the margin of safety requirement that you've imposed for this? And how has that changed over time as your understanding of this name has evolved? Those are all ways, I think, in which you can cement your your sort of confidence that the manager's articulated investment uh, approach really ties back to the portfolio, not just at that point in time, but but over time. And so those those are the kinds of you know sort of questions that you probably want to be mindful of if you have the opportunity to talk to a manager, um, you know, and and basically take their measure. Mm. And, and I would like to spend a moment on, on what I feel is, is, is maybe one of the, 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 the most difficult parts within, within manager research. Um, and, and really that's, that's sort of the, the trade-off between sort of star drift, but adapting to, to, to changing sort of the market environment. So how do you, how do you feel the, val the, the, the balance between that necessary adaptation versus someone who's just simply sort of changing his process for, for maybe the wrong reasons? Yeah, I think, I think, that's that's a real that's a real good term you use there necessary adaptation i think that there definitely needs to be room for that in, in a diligence process i think that if we're too literal um about our interpretation of style and can sort of conformance to to a particular style as we've defined it you know i, I just i think that we basically are denying ourselves um one facet of value that that an investor can deliver an active investor can deliver to us which is recognizing that you know circumstances change premia change um and so there are opportunities to stick within your investment discipline which may have a certain opportunistic streak to it um and exploit opportunities that don't strictly conform to a style as you've defined it and so and there are a number of managers that you know, we followed over the years that, you know, that we strongly recommend that, you know, sort of that's their calling card. You know, they don't have this sort of very kind of cookie cutter definition of value, let's say. Um, it, it's sort of a, you know, it's a malleable definition of value. And I think that's fine. You know, I mean, you, it's especially timely right now because some of the best money that's been made is in, you know, what look like proto growth firms. You know, these were firms that you know, just were, were not making money on a P&L, but they threw off lots of cash or they were endowed with other competitive advantages, which down the road, 
you know, were going to generate gobs and gobs and gobs of cash flow and therefore value. And there were some value investors that recognized it, even though they sat in the right hand column of the style box. And so um, it, I think that there absolutely should be room to to give the, the PM some room and, and not be so literal about sort of their adherence to a style that we've defined. Mm. Balance between consistency versus, yeah, you that's right. Learning that value. Jeff, this has been a, a, a wonderful conversation, and um, you know, uh, I, I would also encourage uh, a lot of our viewers to, to to follow you on Twitter. You always have some very interesting insights and very engaging. So uh, maybe you could share um, your, your Twitter handle also where where um, uh, investors can find you. Yeah, so on Twitter you can find me at it's at at s y o u two s y o u t h one. So it looks like s youth one. So and. Uh, Twitter's been uh, financial. Twitter's been, you know, really great place to to interact with with folks, and and I look forward to any chance that I have to interact with uh, your viewers and listeners. But but thanks so much for the opportunity to to speak with you today and share my views. It's been a real privilege. Fantastic, and thank you to thank you to our audience. Great, um, and we'll we'll see you all next time. And that wraps up this edition of the Credo Fireside Chat. We'd like to thank Jeff Patak for appearing and sharing his thoughts. And more importantly, thank you for listening. Please contact Credo if you have any questions, or if you'd like to invest, visit us at www.credogroup.com. Please note that Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC, a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc., registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Neither Morningstar, Inc., nor its affiliates are affiliated with Credo Wealth. Thank you, and goodbye.